Warning, binge mode contains adult content. That's right. If you've ever had to use a borrowed wand and thought about its properties, then maybe you'd be all right with listening to binge mode. But if not, that's not the kind of content you're looking for. Just check out one of the other podcasts from the Ringer Podcast Network. Check out Villains. We're on that one this Villains! week. Villains! With Shay Serrano, the king. The legend. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why we're carving out time to give Diagon Alley chores to Dragomir, and to be clear, Dragomir Despard, the fake Transylvanian, not Dragomir Gorgovich, the quaffle-dropping chaser, please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. I can't leave, said Harry. I've got a job. Give it to someone else. I can't. It's got to be me. Dumbledore explained it all. Oh, did he now? And did he tell you everything? Was he honest with you? Harry wanted with all his heart to say, Yes. But somehow this simple word would not rise to his lips. Aberforth seemed to know what he was thinking. I knew my brother, Potter. He learned secrecy at our mother's knee. Secrets and lies, that's how we grew up. And Albus, <laughs> he was a natural. Welcome to Binge Mode, Harry Potter. Yes! The Ringer Podcast Network. It's great. I'm Mally Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Woohoo! It's a great website. Joining me today, now that he's finished using the Imperious Curse on a poor soul who's just trying to get through the workday, it's Ringer Senior Creative, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal, I meant it. Just like I mean it when I say it's time for Binge Mode, Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether or not you have reason to fear the thief's downfall, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, rate and review us. Five points and stars for Binge Mode. Yes. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, which is an excellent place to share tips for keeping pumpkin juice containers intact on prolonged dragon flights. Hold on tight. Also, why not head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our binge mode merch guaranteed to withstand the heat. Jinx treasure. Last time on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we concluded our Deathly Hallows Part 1 bundle by exploring the film Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. And on today's episode, already getting emotional here. It's very tough. We're kicking off our Deathly Hallows Part 2 bundle by diving into chapters 26 through 28 of the seventh and final book in the Harry Potter saga. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep. On details from all seven books and 10 films, yes, including the new Fantastic Beasts movie and the wider Potter canon. Taking the entire series into account from the moment we hear the clankers. Man, so the clankers. Horrible. <laughs> Awful. Awful. <laughs> so guzzle that foul-tasting polyjuice. Oh, worse than the Gertie Root, I tell you. Request the nose of your choosing and scale Harry's back because it's time to break into a vault. 
Mal, brains like that, you could be a podcaster. (laughs) So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Hallow's chapters 26 to 28. By climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine, a plot Hogwarts Express. Choo-choo! The trio and Griphook enact their plan to break into Gringotts, and Harry, Ron, and Hermione painfully, a lot of blisters, procure Hufflepuff's cup, then complete a narrow escape on the back of a poor dragon who they set free. But the madcap adventure produces some downsides, too. They lose the sword, and the intrusion alerts Voldemort to the fact that Harry knows about and is now hunting Horcruxes. Whoops! Seeing into Voldemort's mind, Harry learns that the next Horcrux is at Hogwarts, and the trio travels to Hogsmeade to try to find a way into the castle. A group of Death Eaters surrounds them in the Hogsmeade street, but the Hogshead barman turns out to be Aberforth Dumbledore. The eye Harry's been seeing in Sirius's mirror saves them, and then shares the story of his brother Albus's tragic past. Mal? How you expect to do anything once you get inside the studio with Isaac in charge and Cram as his deputy? Well, it's your lookout, isn't it? You say you're prepared to die, and that gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's dive into the pensive. Sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 26 to 28 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is commitment. Chapter 26, Gringotts. You'd be mad to try and rob it. Those are the words that Hagrid speaks to Harry on his first trip to Gringotts Bank as an 11-year-old. Those are some of the first words that Harry hears about the wizarding world, period. It's ingrained wisdom, a truism across wizarding Britain, one reinforced by the legends of the safeguards in place and the words engraved upon the silver doors granting entry to the marbled halls. Enter, stranger, but take heed of what awaits the sin of greed. For those who take but do not earn must pay most dearly in their turn. So if you seek beneath our floors a treasure that was never yours, thief, you have been warned, beware of finding more than treasure there. You have been warned. And indeed, they have. But they're certain. Based on Bellatrix's petrified response to seeing the sword of Gryffindor and thus believing that they'd been in her bank vault, that said vault contains a horcrux. And this is the first actionable lead they've had since securing the locket. They have to check. They have to try. And now, after securing Griphook's allegiance and planning meticulously, they're ready to move. Their plan hinges in part on a, quote, single long coarse black hair, Bellatrix's hair, which made its way onto Hermione's sweater during her torture at Malfoy Manor. But our friends don't just have Bellatrix's DNA and thus the ability to impersonate her via the last of their Polyjuice potion. They also have her wand, which they are convinced will help sell the ruse. But Hermione's not jazzed about needing to impersonate this foul beast or about wielding her wand. I hate this thing, she said in a low voice. I really hate it. It feels all wrong. It doesn't work properly for me. It's like a bit of her. And of course, it is a bit of her. That's why it's going to help seal the impersonation, but also why it feels so vile. The wand chooses the wizard, which means this unyielding stick of walnut saw something in Bellatrix. Together, they've unleashed horrors. Hermione doesn't want that in her hand, and Hermione's not wrong to think it doesn't work properly for her. Harry can't help but recall how she dismissed his similar characterization of the Blackthorn wand that Ron took from the Snatchers and gave to Harry, telling him to keep practicing. Quote, he chose not to repeat her own advice back to her, however. The eve of their attempted assault on Gringotts felt like the wrong moment to antagonize her. Admirable restraint, Harry, my boy. 
Ron tries for a pep talk, noting that the wand will help Hermione get into character. Think what that wand's done! Smooth move, Exlax. That is, of course, exactly Hermione's point and exactly what she doesn't want to think about. As she notes, this is the wand that tortured Neville's parents, the orders Frank and Alice Longbottom, into madness. This is the wand that inflicted untold destruction and despair. This is the wand, she says, that killed Sirius Black. From the book, Harry had not thought of that. He looked down at the wand and was visited by a brutal urge to snap it, to slice it in half with Gryffindor's sword. Harry also contemplates the wand now in his hand. Draco's Hawthorne stick. Quote, he had been surprised but pleased to discover that it worked for him at least as well as Hermione's had done. Remembering what Ollivander had told them of the secret workings of wands, Harry thought he knew what Hermione's problem was. She had not won the Walnut Wands allegiance by taking it personally from Bellatrix. These are lines of massive consequence and significance among our biggest clues ahead of the endgame that Voldemort is not really the master of the Elder Wand. In signaling to us that Harry has gained Draco's wand's allegiance, this primes us to accept upon learning that Draco, not Snape, had really mastered the Elder Wand by disarming Dumbledore atop the tower, that Harry has taken ownership of both the wands that once recognized Draco as their owner. This moment of reflection and insight also illustrates how advanced Harry's understanding of wand lore has become and how it's growing still, readying us for an endgame that hinges, among other things, on Harry understanding the subtleties and nuance of wand lore in a way that Voldemort cannot. Amid these ruminations, the bedroom door opens and Griphook enters. Harry instinctively reaches for the sword. From the book, he could tell that the goblin had noticed. Harry tries to cover this gaffe by immediately diving into logistical discussions, telling Grippy that Bill and Fleur know the gang is departing tomorrow and not to get up to see them off. They can stay in bed and fuck anyway. Yes, it's great news for time. great news for them. They've been storing it up. They're not just being polite to their hosts, of course. They can't risk anyone. Even Bill and Floor spotting Hermione as Bellatrix. Harry for one is ready to move on. He's going to miss his friends, including dear sweet Luna, who's presently practicing with the new wand that Ollivander whittled and sent her, and the comforts of Shell Cottage. But he's eager to escape the confinement, too. Initially, the isolation and raw, natural state of it felt appropriate to Harry. The loneliness of the place matched his raw grief. The view from his clifftop perch and the sound of the crashing waves calmed him as he contemplated the choices he'd made and the ones he'd have to make next. But now it's time to act, and it's been a chore to keep their planning secret from the other people in the house, people he loves and doesn't want to wound, but also knows he can't bring into his confidence— He's steadfast about keeping the circle of trust to Ron and Hermione, the two people Dumbledore told him to confide in from the beginning, and to Griphook, who he needs for this mission. Griphook, though, is one of the reasons Harry's so eager to get a move on. He just can't wait to cast this goblin off, can't wait to complete the task so he can end the alliance. And yet he's no clearer than he was when he first pitched the plan to Ron and Hermione on how he's going to part from Griphook without immediately giving him the sword. The sword, recall that they think they'll need in order to kill the Horcrux they retrieve from the vault, absent at this moment any other method. Part of the reason that they've yet to settle on a sword extraction method is that Grippy never leaves them alone. Quote, he could give my mother lessons, Ron says, recalling the pre-wedding days when Molly did everything in her power to keep Harry, Ron, and Hermione so occupied with pre-wedding prep tasks that they could hardly find a moment to put their heads together in private to strategize. Harry, Bill's warning about bargains with goblins fresh in his mind, believes old Grippy's on the lookout for trickery, and mm. with good reason. As he and Ron, absent Hermione's help given her fierce opposition to the plan and thus refusal to assist in plotting the subterfuge, 
can't land on anything more concrete than, in Ron's words, we'll just have to wing it, mate. Solid strategy, my guys. It's contributing to Harry's overall state. Not the excited anticipatory energy that fueled him ahead of the ministry infiltration earlier in this book, but, quote, anxiety, nagging doubts. He could not shake off the fear that it was all going to go wrong. But as has been the case every step of this journey, Harry can't afford to give in to those doubts. He has to push through them. To assess them in case they reveal real dangers to him, yes, but ultimately to quiet that voice so that he can focus on the necessity of getting the job done. Harry sleeps poorly, riddled as he is, and rises at six. We learn from his assessment of the weather that it's May. So much time has passed. He drinks in the sound of the ocean once more, thinking of how he'll miss it, those cool, comforting rhythms of life. Consistent, eternal. And he looks at Dobby's grave where flowers are blooming, and the stone has already taken on a weathered look in the passing days. Quote, He realized now that they could hardly have laid Dobby to rest in a more beautiful place, but Harry ached with sadness to think of leaving him behind. He wonders again how Dobby had known to find them at Malfoy Manor, how Dumbledore's eye, which Harry is still sure he saw, had appeared to them. But before he can harp on this for long, Harry's overcome by a, quote, shiver of loathing as Bellatrix, the polyjuiced Hermione, walks out. Quote, she tasted disgusting. Worse than Gertie Roots, Hermione says. Hermione then tells Ron to, quote, come here so I can do you. Which, wow, yes. We've been waiting for ages, as we all know. Finally. We realize this is not the long-anticipated copulation of their love, but rather some good old-fashioned human transfiguration. And as always, we find ourselves eternally in awe of J.K.R.'s ability to seamlessly inject comedy into an otherwise unbelievably tense moment. Right, but remember, Ron says, I don't like the beard too long. Oh, for heaven's sake, this isn't about looking handsome. It's not that. It it just gets in the way. But I like my nose a bit shorter. (laughs) Try to do it the way you did it last time. Oh, God. Unlike the nose. Tough look for our guy, Ron Weasley. (laughs) Since our friends only had enough polyjuice for one, Ron's assuming a wholly manufactured identity, while Harry and Griphook will be concealed under Harry's invisibility cloak. Ron's hair is long and wavy, his beard thick like his wand. Ooh. And he's freckle-free. At last, their disguises and protections in place. Grip hook in what I can only assume is a Luke Skywalker and Yoda on Dagobah reference. Yeah. Climbs on Harry's back and they move beyond the Fidelius Charms protection surrounding Shell Cottage to disapparate to the Leaky Cauldron. The Leaky Cauldron's business has taken a wartime hit. It's nearly empty. But those who are present shrink into the shadows when they see Bellatrix enter. Good morning, <laughs> Bella Hermione says to Toothless Tom, and Harry whispers with urgency from under the cloak that she's being too polite. Bellatrix would sooner murder you in the morning than wish you a good one. Time to commit to the bit. The scene that meets them as they move forward into Diagon Alley matches the one they just saw at the bar. Desertion and decay with boarded up shops. Though in their place, Harry notices several new stores dedicated to the dark arts. The pop-up scene in Diagon Alley is famous. Legendary. (laughs) Harry sees his own face on the undesirable number one posters, looking down at him from all across the alley. And they pass as they walk a group of beggars asking for gold. And most melt away when they see Bellatrix. But one runs up to her, shouting about his children, asking where they are, asking what, quote, he has done. Voldemort. The beggar reaches for Hermione's throat, and Ron reacts, stunning him. And then all around them, faces turn their way. This is not exactly the discreet entrance that they were hoping for. 
Harry actually considers leaving and trying again another day before they've gone too far to pull back. But before he can even voice this possibility, they hear someone shout, Madame Lestrange! It's Travers! Griphook whispers. The only problem is Harry, Hermione, and Ron can't quite place who that is immediately. And on the heels of being too chummy with Tom, Hermione overreacts, showing this approaching man the scorn Harry just reminded her display. And what do you want? She says. Well, trouble is, my guy Travers, fellow Death Theater, and a sensitive one. I merely sought to greet you, he says, clearly wounded and cold. But if my presence is not welcome. As he speaks, Harry places his voice. He's one of the Death Eaters who answered Xenophilius' summons. Hermabella covers her tracks, asking how he's doing, making the normal small talk that Death Eaters make between kidnappings and torture and those various things. But our friend Travers immediately reveals one weakness of our friend's plan. They haven't accounted for Bella potentially not being in Voldy's good graces after Harry's escape from Malfoy Manor. Let's not understate the colossal nature of the failure Bellatrix had Harry Potter and lost him. And in losing him, she also lost Ollivander, handing Harry a weapon. And she lost not just a wand maker, but her wand. It would have been reasonable to wonder whether she'd really be in good enough graces to wander freely into Diagon Alley or whether the news of her wand's theft would have spread. And it has, as we'll soon see. But in fairness to our pals, Harry is approximately 47-0 and 0 against Voldemort. And even when those failures lead to periods of exile, like Lucius, Voldy's minions always pop back up in the end. It's not like he has an inexhaustible amount of them anyway. Yet apparently Bella, Voldy's right-hand woman and baby mama, has found herself in unusually hot water. Travers says he's surprised to see her, quote, out and about. Noting he's heard the Malfoy Manor crew has been confined to the premises following the, uh, escape? Harry's escape. Quote, Harry willed Hermione to keep her head. If this was true and Bellatrix was not supposed to be out in public, this obviously isn't exactly like that night atop the lightning struck tower when Harry was literally frozen, trapped, invisible, and unable to act. But in some ways, his commitment to the plan manufactures a similar effect. He could intervene. And yes, in time he will, dramatically so. But if he does it too hastily or too boldly, their cover will be blown and their chances of getting into the vault for the Horcrux will be too. Patience is essential. And in this case, at least, patience is rewarded. Quote, The Dark Lord forgives those who have served him most faithfully in the past, said Hermione in a magnificent imitation of Bellatrix's most contemptuous manner. Perhaps your credit is not as good with him as mine is. And, like, really, how could it be? You know, Bella's milking the snake. He's milking that. Let's be real. Milking it and milking it and milking it. <laughs> this response placates Travers. He looks offended by being reminded that he's not as important to Voldemort as Bella is, but also less suspicious with Bellatrix, who clearly dunks on her allies and enemies with equal aplomb. He pivots to asking how the stunned beggar at their feet offended her, calling him it, and then to bemoaning the legion of, quote, wandless, who are begging for aid and basic human decency. And once on the subject of wands, he quickly leads our pals back into a stinking vat of shit, asking, hmm. whose wand is she using? Quote, I heard that your own was, he starts to say, but she cuts him off. I have my wand here. I don't know what rumors you have been listening to, Travers, but you seem sadly misinformed. That's what we tell Isaac every time he asks us if the runtime is less than 90 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Hermione's disguise is vastly superior to the swollen face that stood between Harry, the Snatchers, and Detection. But the situation is the same in one sense. One call. One question. And the whole fiction 
would unravel in an instant. All our friends can hope is that they get through their business in time. For now, the shade at Travers' lack of reliable intel is sufficient cover. He turns away from Bella to Ron, asking who her friend is, noting that he does not recognize him. This is Dragoman Despard. Just an She's incredible name. Really good name. <laughs> Sounds like a son's draft pick that never panned out. She says, both leaning into their plan to craft a fictional identity and gently pitching the villain for Creed Three. He speaks very little English, but he is in sympathy with the Dark Lord's aims. He has traveled here from Transylvania to see our new regime. Travers extends his hand and asks how Dragomir is. Oh, you! Ron replies. Rich, compelling stuff. Incredible <laughs> improvisations from Ronald Weasley. Travers asks at last why they're in Diagon Alley, and Hermione says they're heading to Gringotts. Unfortunately, so is Travers. This guy's like a boil. It bloomed on the twins' asses when they were testing the snack boxes, and he will not go away. Very stubborn. Come on. And what's more, he oh so predictably begins to shit-talk all the goblins. They're very race upon pronouncing his attention to visit the bank. Harry can feel Grip Hook's hands tighten around his neck, do they? <laughs> Shall we? Travers asks, and Hermione has no choice but to move alongside him. Every step of the mission has led them into a situation more fraught than the one before. They can't afford to have a literal Death Eater watching over them as they try to break into the Lestrange vault. And with Travers loitering, Harry can't whisper any communications to Hermione and Ron. At last, they reach the doors, where instead of the uniformed security goblins normally at the entrance, now stand two wizards holding thin gold rods. Ah, probity probes. Mm, love a probity probe. <laughs> Side Travers, theatrically. So crude, but effective. Thankfully, this, at least, is not an unpleasant surprise. They knew to expect these, and so Harry is ready for the probes, which he knows reveal when passed over a witcher wizard's body Spells of concealment are hidden magical objects. Harry confunds each guard unnoticed by Travers, and when the guards try to stop Hermione as she walks right past, a simple, but you've just done that, paired with a confundus charm, does the trick. Hermione pulls Ron forward, and Harry and Griphook sneak by, invisible. This definitely seems like a flaw in the security, by the way. Yeah, it's not. It's like, what do we... <laughs> this is the best you can do? This is the safest place other than Hogwarts? Good lord. As they reach the second set of doors, Harry looks upon the poem that he read as an 11-year-old and the memory of seeing it for the first time and hearing Hagrid's ensuing words of warning pierces him like a blade forged from terror. That day, Harry reflects, had been the most wonderful birthday of his life. The day he learned he was a wizard. The day he learned there were people out there who cared if he was okay. The day he learned that there was a whole wide world waiting, full of infinite possibility. A world that he was meant to call home. Gringotts was a part of that awakening, a snowy white welcome into the unknown, a strange yet scintillating portal. Quote, Gringotts had seemed a place of wonder that day. Now it's a site of subterfuge, deception, drastic stakes. If this chance goes wrong, they might not get another. The fate of the wizarding world hinges on this moment. And the pressure doesn't just weigh on Harry's shoulder like Griphook. It changes the way he thinks about the foundational pillars of the wizarding world and his place among them. As a wide-eyed boy, full of awe, he gazed upon the splendor, wondering if he'd wake up the next day and realize it had all been some fabulous dream. Now he's not just thinking about others who might represent danger. Extremely Walter White voice. He is the danger. And noble as his intentions might be in this case, 
essential as the task at hand is, it still feels like an intrusion on something holy, a violation of an ideal that used to be sacred. But as the marble hall opens up around them, that all fades away. There's a job to do, and it's all he can focus on. Goblins line the counters serving customers. They let Travers go first, but it doesn't take long for him to fork over his vault key, and suddenly it's Bella's turn. The goblin who greets her seems startled. And as she says that she wishes to enter her vault, that little motherfucker Travers, who will not go away, loitering by her side all the while, Harry notices that several goblins have taken note of her appearance. You have identification? The goblin helping her asks. She tries to act like she's aggrieved, noting that she's never been asked that before, but Griphook sees right away what's afoot. They know, he whispers to Harry. They must have been warned that there might be an imposter. Chilling moment. Yeah, it really is. As is what is about to follow. Yes. (laughs) And when the goblin tells Bella, your wand will do, Harry realizes all at once that they must know her wand had been stolen, must have been readying in possession of that fact and Bellatrix's fear that they had been in her vault before for just such an attempt. Act now, act now, whispered Griphook in Harry's ear. The imperious curse. And so Harry, standing next to the representation of the woman who once mocked him for his failure to deploy an unforgivable curse, belittling his lack of commitment as he unsuccessfully bellowed Crucio at her by saying, never use an unforgivable curse, have you, boy? You need to mean them, Potter, finds the dedication to mean it at last successfully, albeit distressingly, mm-hmm. using an unforgivable <laughs> curse for the very first time. Imperio, he whispers, pointing Draco's wand toward the goblin as he does. He feels a, quote, tingling warmth that seemed to flow from his mind down the sinews and veins connecting him to the wand and the curse it had just cast. Shocking moment. I remember being like, holy shit, it's are a you shocking serious? moment. I literally was like, no, you cannot do this. The goblin, now under Harry's spell, says, ah, you have had a new wand made, Madame Lestrange. And Hermione, not knowing, of course, what Harry has done, is justifiably confused initially denying the charge. And then that ass-boiled Travers chimes in, asking how it can be possible. What wand maker could she have used? Quote, Harry acted without thinking. Once you break the imperious curse seal, it's hard to yes. staunch the flow. <laughs> I mean, it's just it comes very, easily from that. I, I, they say the first one's the hardest one. <laughs> After that, it's like, next thing you know, you're Voldemort. <laughs> Oh, God. Might as well put Travers under the Imperious Curse now, too. It works. And the goblin helping Bellatrix summons another to bring him, quote, the clankers, which proved to be a bag full of jangling metal. Very ominous. He begins to lead them to the cart that will carry them down to the vault, but is quickly waylaid by a colleague. Wait, Bogrod. Our boy has a name. Bogrod, welcome to the story. The quote continues. We have instructions. Forgive me, madam. But there have been special orders regarding the Vault of Lestrange. The Imperious Curse still has old Boggy in its grasp, though, and he shakes off his peer, muttering about very old families and clients. And he leads them on. But while Bogrod and Travers may be under Harry's control, it's clear that the rest of the establishment is on high alert. The jaws of the beast are closing around them. And yet, they must carry on right down into the belly. Harry, apparently now a natural at employing the Imperious Curse, decides with the flick of a wand to bring Travers with him to keep an eye on him rather than risk him coming out of their sights. As soon as the group enters the stone passageway outside the hall and closes the door, Harry sheds a cloak and tells everyone something that surely none of them need to hear. 
we're in trouble, they suspect. As Harry tells the befuddled Ron and Hermione that he used Imperio, Bellatrix's words from the Battle of the Ministry come back to haunt him. Did he mean the words? Is the spell strong enough? Will it hold? Will it matter, given everything else crumbling around them? Ron asks whether they should abort the mission and get out now while they still can. Hermione says, if we can, indicating the lack of certainty over what's transpiring on the other side of the doors they just closed, maybe it's already too late. But in Harry's mind, the path forward is clear, and it's down into the depths below the hall. We've got this far, he says. I say we go on. Griphook is thrilled. He tells them they'll need Bograd for the cart, since Grippy's no longer authorized, then adds, there won't be room, quote, for the wizard. <laughs> Recall Harry's concern about Griphook's bloodlust and seeming joy at the prospect of wizards getting hurt during their intrusion. As Harry sends Travers off to hide, who knows what horror Griphook is hoping will befall him as he's cowering in a corner with his mouth agape, staring into the Literally nothingness. Literally wedging himself into a crevice in the rock face. As Bograd, obeying Harry's command, summons a cart, Harry is sure he can hear shouting in the hall. They're on precious borrowed time, and they know it. Forget the logistics of keeping the sword. They have no idea how they're going to get out of the bank alive. But that's a problem for a few minutes from now. Onward. The cart gains speed, taking them deeper into the abyss, and Harry can't hear anything but the rush of air passing them by. He keeps craning his head back to try to get a look. Quote, they might as well have left enormous footprints behind them. The more he thought about it, the more foolish it seemed to have disguised Hermione as Bellatrix, to have brought Bellatrix's wand when the Death Eaters knew who stole it. I think that might have come up in the... Yeah, I think that... <laughs> the cart takes them deeper than Harry has ever been to the lowest levels, the fabled high-security vault guarded by stuff of legend. Again, if you want to hear more about... That stuff of legend, check out the restricted section on Gringotts from the very first episode of this pod. As they turn a bend at high speed, a speed too great to allow them to halt, they see a waterfall pouring down over the track, and they hear Griphook shout, No! The water pours over them, gushing into their eyes and mouth, every crevice overwhelming them. The cart flips, throwing them out, activated by what Griphook, after they all reach the ground alive thanks to Hermione's fast thinking and deployment of a cushioning charm, identifies as the thief's downfall. The water has washed away their concealments. Hermione is no longer Bellatrix. Ron is no longer Dragomir. But he'll always be Dragomir in a way, yes. won't he? It's just an incredible name. Secrets <laughs> just elite. Quote, They know there are imposters in Gringotts, Griphook shouts. They have set off defenses against us. This is a real heart-thumping-in-your-chest really moment. It's truly terrifying. It was bad enough, scary enough, to fear facing the always-present detections and needing to resort to objectionable means to get by the thinking, breathing barriers that also interfered. But knowing that additional defenses have been actively engaged and that there's no longer any doubt about whether or not they've been found out is petrifying. But remember Ned's words in response to Brand's query about whether a man can be brave if he's still afraid. Quote, that is the mm. only time a man can be brave. Their magical enchantments might have left them, but their courage has not, and neither have their wits. Griphook reminds Harry that they need Boggy to open the vault, and the clankers too. Gotta get the clankers! We will very, very soon find out why it is horrendous. It is horrendous. And so Harry recasts the imperious charm that the waterfall had lifted. Hermione says that she can hear people coming and cast Protego at the waterfall to send the water back up the passageway, hoping to make the path down harder for their foes. Every second counts. Griphook tells them it's not far now. 
quote, and they turned a corner and saw the thing for which Harry had been prepared, but which still brought them all to a halt. A dragon, massive and chained, blocking the deepest, most high security vaults. The poor imprisoned beasts has pale and flaky scales and milky eyes, damaged and partially blinded from its prolonged captivity. Horrible. Griphook, again revealing his savagery, tells them, quote, we have the means to control it. It has learned what to expect when the clankers come. Fucking fry this guy in your fire. It's very tough. I don't know. They have a deal. Come on. They freed the dragon, which is like a great double cross. He pulls the metal from the bag and distributes them, making a ringing sound that this tragically abused creature has come to associate with pain and suffering. The dragon roars and retreats in response to the sound, clearing a path to the vault door. Harry could see it trembling, and as they drew near, he saw the scars made by the vicious slashes across its face. Awful. And guessed that it had been taught to fear hot swords when it heard the sound. This is a tragedy and an important reminder that goblins who accuse wizards of mistreating another class of being are doing so as well. Across the magical world, injustice reigns, and outmoded abusive practices linger. Rescuing the dragon, as they soon will, feels almost as good as finding the Horcrux. Protect! The dragon! <laughs> this always makes me so sad. Harry, per Griphook's urging, directs Bagrad to place his hand upon the door, melting it away with his touch. The vault is filled, floor to ceiling, with riches. Coins, goblets, armor, animal skins. There's even a skull wearing a crown, another diadem primer for us. And Harry instructs everyone to search and fast. He's told Ron and Hermione what Hufflepuff's cup looks like, but the three of them have no idea what else to keep their eyes peeled for. Before they can even begin searching, the door seals them in, but Griphook assures them that Boggy will unleash them when it's time. Boggy! They light their wands, and the beam from Harry's reveals the fake sword of Gryffindor. And then Hermione spots something promising and reaches for it, but as soon as she does, she shouts out in pain, dropping a jeweled goblet which multiplies as it hits the floor. I just love this. It's one of the most creative, like, inventions that JK's, like, ever done. It's brilliant. So Hermione shouts out in pain and drops the jeweled goblet, which multiplies as it hits the floor, making the original impossible to spot among the copies. As Hermione shouts that it burned her, Griphook explains that the bank has added the Gemino and Flagrante curses. Anything they touch will burn them and multiply until they're crushed beneath the weight of the expanding treasure, their flesh melting away all the while. <laughs> to quote Joe Girardi, Not great. It's not what you want. <laughs> it's not what you want. It's not what Raw you want. Raw deal for Joe Girardi, <laughs> says this Yankees fan. <laughs> Sorry, oh, Mel. Oh, sorry. Milt's a Mets fan. Oh, sorry, so. Mel. Milt is just terrified by the prospect yeah. of Syndergaard oh. ending up on the Yankees. You know how as soon as someone tells you not to think about, say, an elephant, it's the first thing you think about? Yes. Well, as soon as Harry tells them, okay, just don't touch anything and we'll be fine. <laughs> like, Rod's foot accidentally hits one of the new goblet copies and then 20 more spring up as the original burns away Ron's shoe. <laughs> not ideal, friends. It's not what you want. <laughs> Hermione implores them to stand still, which is hard to accomplish the mission without moving, <laughs> for one. And Harry encourages them to just look around for the cup or anything with Ravenclaw's eagle on it. But despite their focused and desperate attempt at discipline, they just can't help but brush against objects. And soon, there's barely room to stand. The treasure blazes, turning the vault into a furnace, and they know all the while their enemies are moving close. Harry searches frantically, and at last he sees it, the cup, the one that Tom Riddle had stolen from Hepzibah Smith. R.I.P. R.I.P. Hepzibah. As Harry looks at it, quote, his heart skips and his hands tremble. 
He was right. It's here. But how to get it? Hermione, like Harry in the lake, tries to summon it, but to no avail. Griphook reminds them what we'd already told them, that that won't work in here. Harry asks Griphook for help, using the pull of the sword as leverage, and in mentioning the sword has a brainstorm. Can he use it to safely touch the treasure? He tests it and finds that he can. But he still can't reach it, and as he contemplates how to safely bridge the distance, they hear the dragon roaring and the sound of the clankers. Quote, they were truly trapped now. There was no way out except through the door, and a horde of goblins seemed to be approaching on the other side. Harry looked at Ron and Hermione and saw terror in their faces. Harry turns to Hermione in desperation. Hermione whispers, Levy Corpus, using one of the Half-Blood Prince's spells. Spells that she hates, spells that she forswore. So committed is she to seeing through this moment, to trying to make it out, not only with the object of their desire, but at this point, alive. It's another amazing moment to really relish in hindsight. Snape helping Harry, even though Harry doesn't yet know where Snape's loyalties lie. Harry's lifted into the air by his ankle, and he hits a suit of armor from which scalding replicas burst forth, and they fill the cavern, knocking Ron, Hermione, Griphook, and Boggy into other objects, which also multiply and lead them to all wail and agony. Harry pushes the sword toward the cup and, with a seeker's precision, pokes the blade through the handles. Hermione shrieks, impervious, to try anything she can to protect them from melting below. A bone-chilling scream then fills the room as Griphook sinks fully below the burning treasure, only his fingertips still poking through, and Harry grabs them. Ron's like, let him go! (laughs) There's the (laughs) owl we've been looking for! Ron's like, let him go, buddy! (laughs) Let him go! After seeing the way he treated the dragon, that's now my take as well. Just FYI. Harry grabs the fingertips and pulls the blistered goblin forth and then lowers himself down with a thud onto more scorching metal. And the sword shoots out of his hand. And as Harry begs everyone to reach for it, because it still has the cup on it, yeah. the Horcrux and the Horcrux Slayer that they've risked this all for, now out of reach, they hear louder sounds than ever cross the door. Quote, it was too late. But then Griphook spots the sword. And he's always been a great guy, so there's nothing to worry about. Yeah, Griffith's always been very cool. Very chill guy. (laughs) Nothing nefarious about him at all. He lunges for it in a manner that instantly makes Harry certain that he never expected them to honor their agreement. As Griphook swings the sword out of Harry's reach, the cup flies off of it, and Harry dives for it, catching it like a snitch, holding it tight even as his flesh curdles. As copies of the cup cascade around, the door shoots open and they're all propelled forward as seen on the British cover art for the Deathly Hallows on a slide of gold and silver right into the chamber. Harry shoves the cup into his pocket and reaches for the sword, but Griphook has it and he's gone, melting back into the encroaching goblins, shouting, Thieves! Betraying them as easily as Judas scarfed down the raw meat cubes at Shell Cottage. I mean, to be fair, according to the letter of the agreement, which... Harry was also going to uphold strictly the letter, mm-hmm. not the spirit. Mm-hmm. This is not a betrayal. Sure it is. He was supposed to protect them and make sure they got they got it. He was not supposed to turn them over. He's not turning them over. They know that there are thieves there. They see them. He's just trying to make good his like escape. They're looking at them. Cowardly. I mean, is it not the same thing that Harry was kind of going to do? No, not at all. Harry was ultimately going to give the sword over. He was just going to use it first. He wasn't going to 
throw Griphook into fucking again, he's 20 not, would-be assailants again, and Griphook say, yeah, it, great, now you keep him in again, jail Griphook so that is, I don't have to again, give him Again, Griphook is not throwing them to the cops. The cops are literally there. And then he melts into them. He, What's he's Griphook like, going to do? Fucking, like, swing. Fucking do fight something? for God, justice. <laughs> Take a damn side in that wizard's war you like to go on about. Griphook's not going to do that. Grip hook is being grip hook. This is as good as you're going to get from the grippy. Harry can't mourn the sword right now. Their lives are at stake. And he knows that, quote, the only way out was through. He sends a stunning spell into the crowd and Ron and Hermione follow suit. Some goblins fall, but others keep charging and Harry can see wizards approaching as well. As the dragon roars and flame bathes the goblins, the wizards flee again. And from the book, Inspiration or madness came to Harry, pointing his wand at the cuffs, tethering the dragon to its change. He shouts, Relatio! And frees the beast, ruled by the same gut instinct and preternaturally quick thinking that has led him to victory so often before. This way, he shouts and begins to sprint towards the dragon, continuing to fire stunners as cover. Harry, Harry, what are you doing? Hermione cried. He tells him without stopping, without thinking, without worrying about anything, but the certainty in his heart that this is the only way out. Climb aboard. The dragon chained for so long can't even tell that it's free. And as Harry begins to scale the beast, it doesn't seem to feel him. As soon as Ron and Hermione join him, the dragon realizes that it's unchained. Quote, with a roar, it reared. The wings unused for so long spread wide, knocking the shrieking goblins aside like Skittles and it soared into the air. Mm. Love Skittles. So does Marshawn Lynch. (laughs) (laughs) Harry, Ron, and Hermione <laughs> press themselves flat against it as it scrapes the ceiling in its shaky escape, soaring toward the passage opening. The goblin's soaring daggers bouncing off its metal strong hide. Just as Hermione shouts that they'll never get out, the dragonfire spits blasting open a wider path in the tunnel ahead. Quote, by sheer force, the dragon clawed and fought its way through. Like Harry in his cupboard, He's finally sensed fresh air. Nothing will keep him locked away now. As Harry waits to fall, his eyes closed tight against the terror, he hears Hermione shout, Defodio! To help the dragon enlarge the passage, Harry and Ron mirror her. These four beings, driven by a primal urge to find freedom, working in harmony to escape. At last, they reach the marble hall, and goblins and wizards alike shriek in terror at their approach. As the assembled duck for cover, the dragon smells the outdoors and turning its head towards the exit, forces its way through. Then it, quote, staggered into a diagonally and launched itself into the sky. Fuck yes. Chapter 27, the final hiding place. Riding a dragon is like surfing a wave. You don't so much ride as surrender to its power and mysterious whims. Freed from its grim prison, the dragon soared out over the city, up and up and out to the country, without any inkling that our friends clung for their lives to its scaly back. On and on it flew, seemingly indefatigable. Harry overwhelmed by gratitude for their escape. Ron swearing, Hermione sobbing. Harry wonders how long it'll be until they land and how long it'll be until Voldemort learns what's transpired at Gringotts. Quote, how quickly would they realize what had been taken? And then when they discovered that the golden cup was missing, Voldemort would know at last that they were hunting Horcruxes. Until now, Harry has been operating the shadows. Recall what Dumbledore said to him early in the lessons in Prince. It would not be a good idea if word got around how much I know or suspect about Lord Voldemort's secrets. But that strategy always carried an expiration date. The Gringotts heist was not just a danger to Harry, Ron, and Hermione's freedom and safety if they failed, but in light of their knowledge of Bellatrix's fear of an intrusion, a guarantee that if they succeeded, 
Voldemort would know moving forward what Harry was doing and would work to stop it. It's hard enough to fight an enemy from the shadows. It's even harder when he knows to turn on the light. That's what Harry's facing moving forward. The sun begins to set, but the dragon shows no sign of slowing. And as they near a mountain range dotted with lakes, the dragon begins to descend at last, heading for the water. Beast has developed a thirst. Since the moment that our friends appeared in Diagon Alley today, they've been committed to a course of action from which they could not turn back. There were a few moments where they considered it, but they could not turn back. Every conversation, every decision carried an air of definitive intent. Harry's first use of the Imperius Curse, his desperate decision to free the dragon to keep the bank's guardians at bay, and his stunning move to jump on the creature's back as it blasted and clawed through a tunnel to freedom all made sense because they knew there was no other way but forward and through. Whatever was required, no matter how ruthless or hazardous or previously unthinkable, got them out of Gringotts with their lives and the next Horcrux. What's left now is a leap of faith. Quote, I say we jump when it gets low enough, Harry called back to the others. Like, <laughs> what a day. Oh, man. <laughs> Straight into the water before it realizes we're here. And this they do. Falling from a higher distance than they realized into the green, reedy depths. The dragon, not noticing their dismount, lands 50 feet away and drinks free and fully. So happy for this dragon, honestly. So happy for this beautiful dragon. Harry, Ron, and Hermione make their way to the shore, starving, thirsty, their skin red and burned Mm. from their trial in the vault, exhausted in every respect. And Harry wants nothing more than to lay down and sleep. But he musters the strength to cast their protective enchantments around the spot where they came ashore. And they look at each other, taking in their damage, dabbing Dittany on their wounds, guzzling the pumpkin juice that Hermione brought from Shell Cottage and changing into fresh robes. Holes in clothing seem as insignificant as the houses that they looked at from the sky. What matters is that they made it. They got the Horcrux. They survived. But they lost the sword. As they contemplate the cup and their lack of a slaying method, Hermione very sweetly asks what will become of the dragon. It's a dragon, Hermione. It can look after itself. It's us we need to worry about. <laughs> Thank you, Ron. What do you mean? Well, I don't know how to break this to you. This is great. Ron. But I think they might have noticed we broke into green guts. <laughs> That's a great moment. And all three of them started to laugh. And once started, it was difficult to stop. So Still good. high on adrenaline, the specter of mortal peril finally receding our friends are suddenly, as we have always known them, kids on a great adventure. It's a beautiful moment. But then Hermione puts voice to the new reality. What are we going to do, though? He'll know, won't he? You know who will know we know about his horcruxes. As Ron voices the faint but glorious hope that maybe— They'll be too afraid to tell Voldemort what happened. Searing pain in Harry's scar tears the pastoral lakeside scene apart and expels that notion. Suddenly, Harry is Voldemort, gazing around at a semicircle of wizards, a quaking victim at his feet. What did you say to me? Indeed, the Gringotts heist was kind of hard to miss. (laughs) And we, through Harry, see the Dark Lord learning that thieves in disguise have broken into Lestrange's vault as, quote, fury and fear burned inside him. It's when you, like, mean to send a DM, but you send a tweet. (laughs) It's never happened. (laughs) The one thing he had dreaded, but it could not be true. He could not see how. This is a quintessential Voldemort moment, undone by his enemy's prowess and bravery, yes, of course. But also, importantly, by his own crippling hubris. Imposters? He demands with a quivering goblet. What imposters? I thought Gringotts had ways of revealing imposters. Who were they? It was, it was... The Potter boy 
and two accomplices, and they took, he said, his voice rising, a terrible fear gripping him. Tell me, what did they take? A, a, a small golden cup, my lord. The Dark Lord's fury has always been fearsome, but this time notably amplified by true unexpected dread. It is terrible to behold. From the book, the scream of rage of denial left him as if it were a stranger's. He not only did not see this coming, he truly never considered that was even possible. Had no inkling that anyone knew about his horcruxes from the book. It could not be true. It was impossible. Nobody had ever known. How was it possible that the boy could have discovered his secret? Underestimating Harry. Underestimating Dumbledore. Underestimating always those who seek to challenge him. He slashes the air with the Elder One and green light fills the room. The goblin who told him the news and those who accompanied him and anyone else who didn't manage to flee fall dead. Lucius and Bellatrix manage to escape by placing others between themselves and Voldemort as they make for the exit. But, quote, again and again his wand fell and those who were left were slain, all of them, for bringing him this news, for hearing about the Golden Cup. Don't kill the messenger is an ancient proverb cited by Sophocles and Antigone and in the Bible and many, 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 many other places. Who will dare bring a leader the news they need to hear if, in doing so, they might lose their life? No one. The Dark Lord, always friendless as Dumbledore knew, now stands more alone than ever, surrounded by the corpses of those whose support he desperately needs. Harry observes Voldemort's panicked thoughts as he races to comprehend the magnitude of what's happened. And as he walks among the dead, quote, they passed before him in vision, his treasures, his safeguards, his anchors to immortality. The diary, he knows, is gone. The cup, he now knows, is in Harry's possession. Quote, what if, what if the boy knew about the others? Could he know? Had he already acted? Had he traced more of them? Was Dumbledore at the root of this? Dumbledore, who had always suspected him. Dumbledore, dead on his orders. Dumbledore, whose wand was his now, yet who reached out from the ignominy of death through the boy, the boy. Dumbledore, of course, is not dead on his orders, and Dumbledore's wand is not his. Snape and Dumbledore, will learn, planned Albus's death in advance, and Voldemort's misunderstanding of what transpired here will play a massive role in his decision to murder Snape in order to, unsuccessfully ultimately, try to take full control of the Elder Wand. There is so much, as Harry will tell Voldemort when they face off at the end, that he does not understand, including, of course, what makes Harry strong. Mm -hmm. Voldemort has always discounted Harry Potter as a true threat to his power. He's feared the idea of him mm -hmm. moving against him when he was just an infant, working to stamp out a rival before that rival could really emerge. But even after Voldemort's downfall that night at Godric's Hollow, he dismissed Harry's escape as nothing more than the product of luck. Never forget what he told his followers in the graveyard after returning to his body with Harry bound and captive at his mercy. Quote, you see, I think, how foolish it was to suppose that this boy could ever have been stronger than me. But I want there to be no mistake in anybody's mind. Harry Potter escaped me by a lucky chance, and I am going to prove my power by killing him here and now. Voldemort, of course, did not kill him there and then. Whoops! Or countless other times <laughs> either. Whoops! And in King's Cross, Dumbledore will tell Harry that Voldemort was more afraid than Harry was that night in the graveyard. But even then, and even after Harry's escape from Voldemort's possessive clutches at the Ministry of Magic the following year, even as Harry's wins total mounted, Voldemort remained consumed by his arrogance, revealing some culpability at last. 
but even then only as a means of further diminishing Harry's worth. Quote, that Potter lives is due more to my errors than to his triumphs, Voldemort said at the beginning of Deathly Hallows at Malfoy Manor. He believes, truly believes, that he is what Harry's good friend Tom shouted in the Chamber of Secrets. The greatest sorcerer of all. With Dumbledore gone, he's more certain of that than ever. Yet the voice in his head that he's always quieted with these boasts, the same voice that led him to Godric's Hollow in the first place to choose the half-blood who reminded him of himself over the pure blood he could only ever have dreamt of being, rears now, acknowledging through its hate and its terror the chance, however small, that this boy he overlooked for so long could have bested him in this way. And not this time, because his Death Eaters failed him, proving their incompetence every one. It is an existential shock for the Dark Lord to learn, and to learn too late, that Dumbledore's guiding hand or not, Harry Potter needs to be taken seriously. Voldemort thinks again of his precious treasures, his horcruxes, the symbols of and monuments to his unrivaled, feverish commitment to living forever. And he wonders if it's possible that any could have been destroyed without him knowing it. This part is fascinating. Quote, how could Lord Voldemort not have known if he himself, most important and precious, had been attacked, mutilated? This is one of the clearest illustrations yet of Voldemort's disintegrating humanity. Recall Dumbledore's words to Harry and Prince of Voldemort mutilating his soul, quote, beyond the realms of what we might call usual evil. (laughs) That made him harder to kill. Yes, but it also made him vulnerable in a way that he never anticipated, never prizing as he does the elements of life that feed and nurture the soul. How can you recognize the loss of something that you never need? He warped and erased his sense of self so severely that he couldn't feel, couldn't sense, couldn't recognize a fraction of his soul melting away. Quote, true, he thinks, as he takes stock now, he had not felt it when the diary had been destroyed. But he had thought that was because he had no body to feel being less than ghost. No, surely the rest were safe. The other horcruxes must be intact. Bad news, Tommy. That's that's some more bad news for you. But Voldemort has to be sure. He can't leave it to chance anymore. Must commit fully to discovering the extent of Harry's incursion. Frenzied with rage now, he thinks of his hiding places, each picked with care, each representing something important in his life. And in doing so, he inadvertently tells Harry, his greatest foe, the last unknown Horcrux location, excepting, of course, Harry himself, of which neither is aware. From the book, he paced the room, kicking aside the goblin's corpse as he passed, and pictures blurred and burned in his boiling brain, the lake, the shack, and Hogwarts. Of course it would and will come as a shock to the Dark Lord to learn that the Horcrux hidden in the lake and the shack have been destroyed, both by the sword of Gryffindor, though he doesn't know that part. Years ago, Regulus Black, old R.I.B. himself, with the invaluable aid of creature, purloined the locket from the lake inside the cave, leaving a letter to boast of his achievement. That Voldemort never found this letter, which could have alerted him to his vulnerabilities and his need to reassess and reinforce Uh his protections, is another signature example of his excessive self-pride. The key to saving himself was there the whole time, but he never even thought to look. And of course, just a few chapters ago, Ron and Harry destroyed the locket. And Dumbledore meticulously combed through memories in the pensive in order to link Tom Riddle to Morvola Gaunt in their ramshackle home where he discovered the ring, which he, after recognizing the resurrection stone and trying it on, thus falling victim to its curse, annihilated with the sword. But even now, faced with the fact clear as day 
that his horcruxes are no longer a secret, Voldemort remains so committed to the infallibility of his own greatness that he cannot countenance the idea that his grand twisted schemes could possibly have been unraveled, and certainly not by Harry Potter. Quote, a modicum of calm cooled his rage now. How could the boy know that he had hidden the ring in the gaunt shack? No one had ever known him to be related to the gaunts. He had hidden the connection. The killings had never been traced to him. The ring surely was safe. And how could the boy or anybody else know about the cave or penetrate its protection? The idea of the locket being stolen was absurd. As for the school, he alone knew where in Hogwarts he had stowed the Horcrux because he alone had plumbed the deepest secrets of that place. And there was still Nagini, who must remain close now, no longer sent to do his bidding. This is an astonishing string of hubris and idiocy from our guy, Voldy. Discounting Dumbledore's ability to connect him to the gods or learn about his time in the orphanage and the places he had gone. His thoughts about the room of requirement are particularly galling, given our many trips there with Harry, and our awareness that the version of the room in question contains visual proof of eons of use and discovery. There's a lot of stuff in there, Voldemort. <laughs> Quite a that bit. you didn't put in there. <laughs> Quite a bit. <laughs> and that's not to mention Draco using the room to hide and fix the vanishing cabinet and port the Death Eaters through it into the school. None of that's worth knowing, Voldemort boy. Come on. Still, still, still. You know, this ping pong game playing out in his own mind. We volley back to he must be sure. And just like finding the Elder Wand, he must do this on his own. Unlike Harry, who draws strength from his friends, Voldemort wraps himself not in love and camaraderie, but in secrecy and isolation. He decides to visit the Gaunt Shack first, thinking it the most susceptible spot as, quote, an old unease flickered inside him. He remembers that Dumbledore knew his middle name and could have connected him with the Gaunts. More on this in The Seven. And this is where it's worth just quickly noting how truly odd it is that he can dismiss Harry all he wants. He can yeah. fail in his arrogance to take Harry seriously. But he always feared Dumbledore. Yeah, he did. Always. And yet he does not account for someone as brilliant and determined and resourceful and prodigiously skilled as Dumbledore was being able, by any means necessary, to find the truth that he sought. It's fascinating. And then the doubt sets in. Doubt that we don't typically associate with Voldemort as he acknowledges to himself, even as he says to himself that it's impossible, that Dumbledore could maybe, maybe, have learned of his childhood misdeeds through the orphanage ties. Dumbledore, after all, is the one who came to Tom Riddle at the orphanage to tell that 11-year-old boy that he was a wizard. Dumbledore was the one who learned that he was strange, that he made the other children feel afraid. And even still, even still, Voldemort playing all of this out in his mind is sure that Hogwarts is safe. Not only for the absurd reason that we already explored about him thinking he's the only one who's discovered the room of requirement, but for a more logical and practical, though ultimately still flawed reason, he thinks Harry can't get in. He's not going to be able to get into Hogsmeade or the school without detection. Yet he decides, out of an abundance of long overdue caution— to alert Snape to the fact that Harry might try to enter the castle, just in case. Unknowingly readying Snape to be on his guard for a showdown. But Voldemort does not consider telling Snape why the boy might return. Quote, it had been a grave mistake to trust Bellatrix and Malfoy. Didn't their stupidity and carelessness prove how unwise it was ever to trust? 
Neither Bellatrix nor Malfoy knew that the objects in their care contained a fragment of the Dark Lord's soul, but that doesn't matter to Voldemort. Mm-hmm. It just matters that they failed him. Recall again Dumbledore's words to Harry in Prince, quote, you will hear many of his Death Eaters claiming that they are in his confidence, that they alone are close to him, even understand him. They are deluded. Lord Voldemort has never had a friend, nor do I believe that he has ever wanted one. And we see here how true that really is, how fleeting his reliance on other people is, how weak his resilience is as a result. He's not just showing Harry the inner workings of his mind right now. He's inadvertently widening the gap ever further between his weakness and Harry's strength, between his debilitating hate and mistrust and the force of Harry's love. He knows, Harry says, as he comes to on the grass by the lake, his body still wet, his own voice sounding foreign to him with Voldemort's ringing in his head. He knows, and he's going back to check where the others are. And the last one is at Hogwarts. I knew it. I knew it. Harry did. His connection to Voldemort, as we've explored, has often filled him with doubt and shame. But it's also granted him real insight and understanding, the ability to commit to a plan he knows is valid. After all of the hours and days and weeks and months of waiting and wondering, not knowing where to turn or what to do, they have clarity. But that clarity is crushingly costly, and there's no time or room to waste. If they don't move now, they'll miss their chance. Ron asks if Harry saw where in Hogwarts the Horcrux is hidden. Harry says no. But he wants to head to Hogwarts now as soon as possible. Hermione, of course, wants time to plan their course of action, but Harry knows that there is no time for that now. They committed when they raided Gringotts to a course which demands swift action. They're reaping what they've sowed. To delay for any reason is to give Voldemort the space he needs to regain the initiative. We need to get going, Harry says. Can you imagine what he's going to do once he realizes the ring and the locket are gone? What if he moves the Hogwarts Horcrux, decides it isn't safe enough? They'll go to Hogsmeade, Harry says, under the invisibility cloak. Hermione notes that they barely fit under it now, and the symbolism is powerful. The hallow that once allowed Ignotus Peveril to escape death will once more safeguard our friends, no longer children, fully shrouded under its protective cover as they head toward the threat of death. Chills. Chapter 28. The Missing Mirror. Our friends touch down in Hogsmeade, and Harry is struck by longing at the sight of the familiar shops and street and mountains in the distance. Quote, with a lurch of the heart, he remembered with piercing accuracy how he had landed here nearly a year before, supporting a desperately weak Dumbledore in the final moments of Albus Dumbledore's life. And then... A sound like a scream shatters Harry's aching recollections, and a dozen hooded Death Eaters swarm into the street, wands at the ready. And Harry and co. can't even try to stun their foes. Any action might give away their hiding spot. And the Death Eaters seem to be thinking much the same thing. Accio Cloak, one of them says. But Harry's invisibility cloak, a deathly hallow, doesn't so much as twitch. As Xenophilius said, the cloak of Hallow's lore is, quote, a true invisibility cloak, which, quote, endures eternally, giving constant and impenetrable concealment, no matter what spells are cast at it. Here, as it has so often before, Harry's cloak, one of Harry's bridges to his father, shields him from harm. Our friends manage to shrink into a side street, evading the clutch of Death Eaters by inches. And Hermione says they should just leave, and Ron agrees, but Harry realizes that Voldemort's minions have prepared for this moment and thus have likely enabled some method to prevent their escape, to keep them trapped. And then he hears a truly horrifying query. What about Dementors, one of the Death Eaters says? They're debating 
among themselves, one saying that the Dark Lord wants Harry dead by no hands but his own, the other saying that the Dementor will merely kiss Harry, not kill him. Quote, the Dark Lord wants Potter's life, not his soul. And there is something so fittingly tragic about realizing and seeing that Voldemort's followers understand just as little about the precious nature of one's soul, about the force of life and light that actually represents, as he does. And as this exchange plays out, dread overcomes Harry. If the Dementors come, he will need to produce a Patronus to shield them. And if he produces a Patronus, they won't be able to hide. Hermione whispers that they'll have to at least try to disapparate, try to get away. But as soon as she says it, the cold and hopelessness that is the creature's trademark steals over them. They try to disapparate. And as staunch as their commitment is, as urgent as their need to enter the castle now that they know Voldemort is approaching, they can't do any of that if they're reduced to soulless shells. They try to turn, but just as Harry guessed, the Death Eaters have effectively cast spells to keep them from doing so. The air is thick and impenetrable. They can't leave. They retreat further down a side street, trying to stay silent, but the Dementors are inching ever closer, and Harry is sure that they can sense our friend's fear and despair and their still warm bodies. Quote, he raised his wand. He could not, would not suffer the Dementors' kiss, whatever happened afterward. It was of Ron and Hermione that he thought as he whispered, Expecto Patronum. His signature stag charges down the Dementors, which scatter, but a Death Eater shouts in triumph. It's him. Down there, down there, I saw his Patronus. It was a stag. The Dementors are gone, but the Death Eaters are drawing near now. Averting one crisis has only brought the next one closer from the book, but before Harry and his panic could decide what to do, there was a grinding of bolts nearby. A door opened on the left-hand side of the narrow street, and a rough voice said, Potter in here, quick! He obeyed without hesitation. The same gut instinct that has guided him so often, leading him to safety again. Our friends, per the tall figure's hurried instructions, keep the cloak on and head inside, realizing as they do that they're in the hogshead and up a narrow set of stairs to find themselves in a small sitting room with a fireplace above which hangs a portrait of a blonde girl, quote, who gazed out at the room with a kind of vacant sweetness. The voice we shall learn imminently belongs to Aberforth Dumbledore, Alice's brother, and the painting is of Ariana, the sister we and Harry have heard so much about this book, the sister whose grave we saw in Godric's Hollow. Our friends hear voices arguing in the street below and creep under the cloak to gaze down from the window. Aberforth, whom Harry now recognizes as the barkeep at the Hogshead, is having a go at the Death Eaters, haranguing them for setting Dementors loose on his street and insisting that it was his Patronus, not Harry's, that they saw. That wasn't your Patronus, said a Death Eater. That was a stag. It was Potter's. Stag, roared the barman, and he pulled out his wand. Stag, you idiot. Expecto Patronum. Aberforth's Patronus, a goat. Very fond of goats. Gallops down the street, but the now less certain Death Eater says, Someone set off the alarm, a caterwauling charm. From the book, If I want to put my cat at, I will, and be damned to your curfew. Aberforth says, instantly rising up the icon power rankings with his commitment to standing up to the Death Eaters. We don't yet know how he'll interact with Harry, as we'll soon see the very fraught nature of his relationship to Albus's mission. But he's clearly unafraid to challenge the enemy, and it's inspiring to see. He clearly knows how to work his mark, specifically by mentioning theirs. Quote, I hope for your sakes you haven't pressed your little dark marks and summoned him. He's not going to like being called here for me and my old cat, is he now? He's showing his enemies his strength, but he's also preying on their fears. It's expertly done, and he's not finished. If they ship him off to Azkaban, he says, where will they run their side hustles, if not his pub? Quote, I keep my mouth shut, it's why you come here, isn't it? 
precious few, as we'll soon see, know the real Aberforth, but that isn't stopping him from using his persona to his advantage. If anything, it's helping him. After some back and forth, the Death Eaters leave, granting Harry a temporary reprieve. Always love to meet a fellow cat lover. Yeah, loves you know? a cat. Hopefully not quite in the same Oh my God, listen, stay, t- stay tuned. Stay tuned. the goats. <laughs> 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 Ooh. Aberforth heads inside and our friends breathe a sigh of blessed relief, stepping out from under the cloak at last. As Aberforth climbs the stairs, Harry notices a small rectangular mirror propped on the mantel. Bum, bum, bum! Below the portrait. (laughs) (laughs) Is that serious as Mirror's music? (laughs) As soon as Harry spots it, the barman enters. Quote, you bloody fools, he said gruffly, looking from one to the other of them. What were you thinking coming here? Thank you said Harry. We can't thank you enough. You saved our lives. Harry walks toward him, gazing into his face, taking in the features behind the wiry beard and hair. Quote, he wore spectacles. Behind the dirty lenses, the eyes were a piercing, brilliant blue. It's your eye I've been seeing in the mirror, Harry says. There's a silence as he and the barman gaze at each other. You sent Dobby, Harry adds. And Aberforth nods and then asks where Dobby is, why he isn't with them. And Harry tells him, that Dobby is dead. The Bellatrix killed him. I'm sorry to hear it, the barman says. I liked that elf. And we can tell that he means it. And that knowledge, coupled with the earlier rescue, is enough to win us to this man's side. An essential position for us and Harry and Ron and Hermione to occupy now, before that faith is severely tested during his ensuing Albus reveals. And speaking of Albus, Harry realizes quickly, piecing together the blue eye and the presence of the mirror and the affection for Dobby and Albus's old comments about being friendly with the local barman, whom he's speaking to. You're Aberforth, he says, and it's not a question. Yep, he knows. Harry, his certainty and confidence now so fully in bloom, is sure. And Aberforth doesn't confirm, but his lack of a response is answer enough. And Harry asks how he got the mirror. Sirius's mirror, the twin to the mirror that his godfather gave him to use in a time of need, the mirror that Harry put unopened into his trunk, determined as he was not to be the one who led Sirius out of the safety of Grimmauld Place, the mirror that he discovered after Sirius's death and thought in a moment of fiercest longing would allow him to see his godfather again, the mirror that, after it lay forgotten and largely turned to dust, ultimately performed its function. I want you to use it if you need me, all right? Sirius said when he gave Harry the mirror in order of the phoenix. And all this time later, long after Sirius fell beyond the veil, it performed its function. I'm already getting really sad. God. Channeling Harry's call for help, bringing him protection. It's one of the series' most remarkable testaments, not only to J.K. Rowling's master plotting and anticipatory design, but to the way that magic can bridge the chasms in our lives that death carves. Aberforth says that he bought it from Dung about a year ago. Quote, Albus told me what it was. Been trying to keep an eye out for you. And so in a way, Harry was right all along when he thought that he saw Dumbledore's cool blue eye gazing out at him. The headmaster, through his planning, through his brother's inky pools, and as we'll see in The Prince's Tale, through various other means as well, has been keeping watch over Harry still. As Dumbledore himself said, you think the dead we have loved ever truly leave us? Harry has needed Dumbledore and Sirius all year, and in a way, they've been there. Ron, upon hearing Abe's declaration that he's been keeping a lookout, 
then gets a chance to once again display his ace memory for notable Patronuses. From the book, Ron gasped, the Silver Doe, was that you too? <laughs> this is amazing. This is truly, and we talk about face blindness, but I think Ron might have Patronus blindness. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's like, what? Brains like that? You could be a Death Eater, son. Haven't I just proved my Patronus is a goat? <laughs> Iconic shit oh from Ronald God. Weasley. But let's cut him some slack. He's hungry, as he says, his stomach helpfully rumbling on cue. And we all know how he gets when he hasn't had a home-cooked meal. This Abe helpfully provides, bringing them bread, cheese, and naturally mead. Just what teenagers need. <laughs> a well-balanced meal. Yes. After they've eaten, Abe tells our friends that they need an exit strategy. Stat. The caterwauling charm makes a nighttime exit impossible, absent detection. But he tells them to be ready to leave at first light, suggesting they head under the cloak for the mountains, where they'll be able to disapparate. Might see Hagrid, he says. He's been hiding in a cave up there with Grop ever since they tried to arrest him. And there is something so comforting and painful about knowing that Hagrid is so close. It's also another sign of Averforth's close ties to the Order. Surely, precious few know where Hagrid is. Our friends won't be dissuaded, though. Not by a gang of Death Eaters, not by swarms of Dementors, not by the prospect of Snape lurking somewhere in the castle. They're dedicated to the quest, to the mission, to destroying the Horcruxes and ending Voldemort once and for all. We're not leaving, said Harry. We need to get into Hogwarts. Don't be stupid, boy, said Aberforth. We've got to, said Harry. Ah, there are those two words again. Got to. The words that Dumbledore hurled back at Harry when trying to get him to see that Harry... Not the words in the prophecy was in control of his fate. Got to, Dumbledore said to him at the time, the thrill of their Horcrux discovery from Slughorn's hard-earned memory, morphing into a lesson about the power of agency and the nature of existence. Of course you've got to, but not because of the prophecy, because you yourself will never rest until you've tried. Because in other words, Harry is too committed to ever walk away, too determined to fight for goodness, to ever turn a blind eye to pain and suffering. When he says got to here, he's transformed from the boy he was a year ago. He's not resigned to a destiny he thinks someone else has forged. He's committed to forging the one he believes in. What you've got to do, Abe says, is to get as far from here as you can. And this is jarring because we just saw this man stand up to Death Eaters, lie to them and manipulate them, call them idiots to their faces. Why is he encouraging Harry to run? And Harry tells him he doesn't understand that they need to get into the castle. Dumbledore, I mean, your brother wanted us. And this, Harry will learn, is exactly the wrong thing to say to Aberforth Dumbledore. As the firelight reflects on Aberforth's glasses, they appear to Harry opaque, reminding him of the blind spider Aragog, priming us for the divide that's about to emerge between how Aberforth and Harry view the headmaster's true nature, about what those close to him could or could not see. Quote, my brother Albus wanted a lot of things, said Aberforth. And people had a habit of getting hurt while he was carrying out his grand plans. Oh. You get away from this school, Potter, and out of the country if you can. Forget my brother and his clever schemes. He's gone where none of this can hurt him. And you don't owe him anything. Man. It is hard to articulate how deflating this is to hear. Harry has spent much of this book drowning in a sea of doubt, wondering with each new rumor, whisper, or reveal about Dumbledore whether he really knew his mentor. I don't know who he loved, Harry said to Hermione as he sunk deeper into that sea of despair. But it was never me. This isn't love, the mess he's left me in. 
Harry's tried to pull himself back up out of that suffocating doubt, to hold on to the life rafts of what he's learned about the sword and the hallows and more, anything that indicates that Dumbledore did have a plan. But now he's hearing Albus's own brother give voice to the exact fear that had eaten away at Harry's heart as he reflected upon feeling Hermione's comforting touch, that he, quote, hated himself for wishing that what she said was true, that Dumbledore had really cared. But Harry doesn't allow himself to fall back into wondering whether Dumbledore had cared or how this world would crumble. If he didn't, he pushes on, telling Aberforth again, you just don't get it. Oh, don't I? Aberforth replies, and we'll soon learn that he understands as well as anyone, but also that the ghosts of the past inform every word that he's speaking in the present. You don't think I understood my own brother? Think you knew Albus better than I did? And Harry, feeling sluggish, struggling to navigate this conversation, tries to explain that that isn't what he meant, but that Albus left him a job, a reason to plow ahead no matter what. And this, again, is the wrong thing to say to Aberforth, whose perspective on the late headmaster is decidedly more complex and intimate than our friends yet understand, whose every word is shaped by the kind of horror that never leaves a person, that makes it near impossible to ever say, well, people change. Did he now, said Aberforth. <laughs> nice job, I hope. Pleasant, easy. Sort of thing you'd expect an unqualified wizard kid to be able to do without overstretching themselves. And as Ron laughs grimly and Hermione looks strained, Harry says, no humor or aggression in his voice, that it's not easy, no. Nothing about Harry's life has ever been. Quote, but I've got to, he says. And then Aberforth shows that despite the eternal wound, the kind that, like some hurts caused by dark magic, never fully heal, he is Albus's brother, a link, albeit a reluctant one, between Harry and the headmaster. Got to, he says. Why got to? But his reason isn't the same as Albus's when he used those same words. When he wanted, needed Harry to understand that true strength comes from choosing to try. He's dead, isn't he? Aberforth says. Let it go, boy, before you follow him. Harry is taken aback at Aberforth's naked antipathy. Albus Dumbledore's brother, a member of the Order, who'd been helping the trio from afar and here up close, surely at great risk to himself, is not a believer in continuing the cause. Thinks it hopeless, in fact. Aberforth doesn't see Harry and his friends as the vanguard of the Order of the Phoenix on a vital and necessarily secret mission to take down the Dark Lord and restore the Ministry. He sees three kids in over their heads who've been sold a line by the great Albus Dumbledore and who, intoxicated by the responsibility he's given them, are running headlong into a suicide mission against the most powerful dark wizard of all time, his army of Death Eaters, Dementors, and the full might of the Ministry of Magic. All Harry can try to do, pushed onto his heels as he's been by this conversation, is go on the offensive. But you're fighting too, he says. You're in the Order of the Phoenix. I was, Aberforth replies. The Order of the Phoenix is finished. You know who's won. It's over. And anyone who's pretending different's kidding themselves. It'll never be safe for you here, Potter. He wants you too badly. So go abroad. Go into hiding. Save yourself. Saving himself is antithetical to Harry's very nature, to everything he stands for. His instinct always is to try to save other people, even if it means, as it will in mere chapters, sacrificing himself. Harry is insistent, fully committed. He has a job to do, he tells Abe. And what's more, he has the clarity that he gleaned from Dumbledore about why that job matters, about walking in with his head held high. Give it to someone else, Aberforth shouts. I can't, Harry says. It's got to be me. Dumbledore explained it all. And it can't for so many reasons, the ones that Dumbledore has shared and the ones that he hasn't. 
Harry doesn't yet know that he must allow himself to die so that the Horcrux within is defeated. That he, not Hogwarts, is truly the final hiding place. But he knows that he'd never be able to sit back and watch others die while he did nothing. Oh, did he now? Aberforth says, zeroing in on a wound he knows must be there, knowing Albus as he does and pouring the salt right in. And did he tell you everything? Was he honest with you? And this pulls Harry up short. Yes. He wants desperately to say yes, but the word gets caught up somewhere on the way to his lips, traveling the path full of reminders of all the times he begged Dumbledore to share more. Stop keeping him in the dark. Of all the times this year, he lamented how little Dumbledore had shared, even as he prepared Harry for the task ahead. Don't expect me to explain everything, Harry shouted at Hermione as he worked through the horror of what he'd read in the life and lies of Albus Dumbledore. Just trust me blindly. Trust that I know what I'm doing. Trust me even though I don't trust you. Never the whole truth. Never. Aberforth is unsurprised by Harry's inability to argue the point here. As committed as Harry, Ron, and Hermione are to carrying out Dumbledore's mission, that's how committed Aberforth is to tearing down for Harry what he considers the artifice of his brother's reputation to reveal what he considers the real man beneath. I knew my brother Potter. He learned secrecy at our mother's knee. Secrets and lies. That's how we grew up. And Albus, he was a natural. An all-time line in an all-time chapter. Holy shit. As Aberforth delivers that tragic assessment of how he perceives his brother's nature, his eyes move to the portrait above the mantle. Quote, it was now Harry looked around properly, the only picture in the room. There was no photograph of Albus Dumbledore nor of anyone else. Hermione gestures at the portrait and asks, is that your sister? Ariana? And he says yes, tersely, and asks if they've been reading Rita Skeeter. We're gaining some of our sympathy here, reminding us how torturous it must be to see his family's turmoil turned into Wizarding World blog fodder. Harry tells him, no, they heard about her from Alpheus Doge. But that hardly soothes Abe. That old Burke. (laughs) (laughs) Moderate Aberforth taking another swig of mead. Thought the sun shone out of my brother's every orifice, he did. <laughs> well, so did plenty of people, you three included, by the looks of it. Just fucking zinger after zinger. Very, very, very cutting commentary from Aberforth Dumbledore. On par with Aunt Muriel here for yeah. the batting average yeah. of these lines. Harry remains taciturn, not wanting to voice the uncertainties that have gnawed away at him for months. Quote, He had made his choice while he dug Dobby's grave. He had decided to continue along the winding, dangerous path indicated for him by Albus Dumbledore to accept that he had not been told everything that he wanted to know, but simply to trust. Not long ago, this kind of talk from Dumbledore's brother, no less, would have thrown Harry into a pit of frustration and anger. But that was before Ron's return and the destruction of the locket, before Malfoy Manor and Dobby's death, before his decision to hunt Horcruxes rather than seek the Hallows and his chat with Ollivander about the Elder Wand, before moving on Gringotts and realizing that Voldemort had learned at last what Harry was seeking to do. Just as there can be no return to a life before Harry heard the prophecy, to a life before Voldemort marked him where Harry learned about the Horcruxes or lost Dumbledore and inherited this quest or any of it, any of it at all, there can be no return to the debilitating hesitation and confusion that plagued him so throughout much of this book. Quote, he had no desire to doubt again. He did not want to hear anything that would deflect him from his purpose. He looks at Aberforth, who gives him that same Dumbledorean sensation of being x-rayed. Quote, and Harry thought that Aberforth knew what he was thinking 
and despised him for it. <laughs> Hermione tells Aberforth, Professor Dumbledore cared about Harry very much. Trying to underscore with her comment why they're so committed to him still, why they believe despite all the seeming reasons not to. Dumbledore may not always have told Harry every detail of his plan, or sometimes any of them. Even after opening himself up and claiming to do so fully, he kept the truth of Harry's identity and Snape's allegiance and his own past private. But he always had Harry in his heart, always felt the same love for Harry that he knew would allow Harry to win in the end. He was fallible, sure, but who isn't? That's what makes him so human. Aberforth, though, can't see beyond his own grief. Did he now? said Aberforth. Funny thing, how many of the people my brother cared about very much ended up in a worse state than if he'd left them well alone? Hermione asks what Aberforth means, noting that that's a very serious charge. Are you talking about your sister? He looks at her, chewing his lip like a child, unsure of what to say, and then it all spills out. The truth that we and Harry have craved, but couldn't possibly be ready to hear. He tells Hermione, Harry, and Ron that when Ariana was six years old, three muggle boys attacked her after seeing her do magic. She was a kid. She couldn't control it. No witch or wizard can at that age. The boys, he says, forced their way through the hedge and demanded that she show them her strange ability, her trick. When she couldn't, from the book, they got a bit carried away trying to stop the little freak doing it. They attacked her, abused her, broke her. Aberforth stands as he continues. Suddenly terrible in his anger and the intensity of his pain. Hermione and Ron look sick and afraid. From the book, it destroyed her what they did. She was never right again. She wouldn't use magic, but she couldn't get rid of it. It turned inward and drove her mad. It exploded out of her when she couldn't control it, and at times she was strange and dangerous. This is sickening to hear, a terrible tragedy that destroyed a life and a family. It's also a textbook definition of what we've since come to learn from the Fantastic Beast film is an obscurial. The being that comes into existence when a young witch or wizard made to feel ashamed of their magic represses it, and it turns inward, becoming a dark force, a dark twin, an obscurus that bursts forth and destroys. Though the terms obscurial and obscurus never appear in the original seven Potter books, it's unambiguous to most Potter fans that the description that applies to the poor girl Newt met in Sudan, and of course, to Credence, describes Ariana too, that this, not those foul rumors of being a squib or suffering familiar mistreatment, is why Ariana remained hidden away. But mostly, Aberforth adds, she was sweet and scared and harmless. She didn't want to hurt anyone, but she couldn't control what she'd become. And he next explains that their father, Percival, attacked the boys who hurt Ariana. And here at last we learn the truth behind the nasty Percival whispers that have dotted this book. He wasn't a muggle hater, as the characterizations of his attack, arrest, and the family's ensuing need to relocate to Godric's Hollow had led us to believe. He was seeking to avenge his daughter's trauma. Percival never revealed the impetus behind his tack, we learn, because, quote, if the ministry had known what Ariana had become, she'd have been locked up in St. Mungo's for good. Again, consider the language here from Aberforth, what Ariana had become, a different being in Obscurial. Aberforth says, rightly based on the fear-charged prejudice that we've seen directed toward the mere idea of Obscurials in the Beast films, that the government would have viewed her as a threat to the statute of secrecy, quote, unbalanced like she was, with magic exploding out of her at moments when she couldn't keep it in any longer. The family prioritized her safety over seeking help, over preserving their reputation, over trying to get Percival free. They moved to a new home in a new land and disseminated the rumor that she was ill and that Kendra was caring for her, hoping to avoid questions and prying eyes. 
hoping to keep Ariana safe. Quote, I was her favorite, he said. And as he said it, a grubby schoolboy seemed to look out through Aberforth's wrinkles and tangled beard. Not Albus. He was always up in his bedroom when he was home, reading his books and counting his prizes. He says, still proud of his ability to reach his sister, still overcome by the strength of their bond, that he was able to get her to eat to stay calm. But he wasn't there to calm her, he says, one day when she was 14. She had one of her rages and my mother wasn't as young as she was and it was an accident. Ariana couldn't control it, but my mother was killed. Ariana Dumbledore killed her mother because of the parasitic force attached to her, a force that grew from an attack that made her ashamed of her power and identity, robbed her of her own control. It's a tragedy that defies comprehension and no wonder Dumbledore never spoke of it. From the book, Harry felt a horrible mixture of pity and revulsion. He did not want to hear anymore, but Aberforth kept talking, and Harry wondered how long it had been since he had spoken about this, whether, in fact, he had ever spoken about it. Kendra's death put an end to Albus's plans to travel the world with Doge, forcing him, as the elder of the family, with their mother dead and their father in prison, to return home and care for his two siblings. Ha! Aberforth spat into the fire. I'd have looked after her. I told him so. And we can feel, despite the horror of what we've already learned, that we're still building toward the worst reveal of all. Albus wanted Aberforth to continue his education. Bit of a come down for Mr. Brilliant, Abe says. There's no prizes for looking after your half-mad sister. There's more here than the sense of a lost war of defeated resignation that we thought may have fueled his earlier comments about the order being finished, the battle being lost. There's real bitterness, even hatred. He did all right for a few weeks, Aberforth says of his brother. Till he came. Grindelwald, of course. Who else could it be? But the merry face specter that's hung over this whole book. Quote, at last, my brother had an equal to talk to, someone just as bright and talented as he was. Caring for Ariana, he says, took a back seat for Albus. His priority, his focus, his obsession became Gellert Grindelwald and the world they talked of building. And as we've learned from J.K. Rowling's post-Deathly Hallows comments, Dumbledore's pull toward Grindelwald was about more than just finding an intellectual equal. He was in love. And as Jude Law's Dumbledore says in Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, we were closer than brothers. And when Jude Law's Dumbledore looks at the images of himself and Grindelwald as young men, he thinks, according to the stage direction in the screenplay, quote, he is full of remorse, but almost worse, nostalgia. For the only time in his life, he felt fully understood. Feeling fully understood? is a powerful, transformative thing. Quote, You cannot imagine how his ideas caught me, Harry. Inflamed me. Dumbledore will tell Harry later in this book in King's Cross. So much of what Grindelwald represented held sway over Albus, including the pull of the Deathly Hallows and all that they represented. Aberforth continues here. They were hatching all their plans for a new wizarding order and looking for hallows and whatever else it was they were so interested in. Grand plans for the benefit of all wizard kind. And if one young girl got neglected, what did that matter when Albus was working for the greater good? We don't want to believe it. Even though we've seen the letter in which Dumbledore himself used those words, the words that became Grindelwald's motto. But he got caught up in dreams of power. The power that, after what transpired next, He never trusted himself around again. Quote, two months of insanity, Dumbledore will tell Harry and King's Cross, of cruel dreams and neglect of the only two members of my family left to me. Aberforth, whom Dumbledore refers to in King's Cross as my rough, unlettered, and infinitely more admirable brother, who returned to reality along with him, made his stand telling both Albus and Grindelwald that they needed to give up their grand illusions, that Albus 
needed to care for Ariana, couldn't take her with them as they set out to rule, quote, wherever it is you're planning to go when you're making your clever speeches, trying to whip yourselves up a following. Notably, this anticipatory statement from April 4th very much matches what we see from Grindelwald and with an obscurial in the audience, no less, in crimes. He continues, Grindelwald didn't like that, April 4th says. He got angry. He told me what a stupid little boy I was trying to stand in the way of him and my brilliant brother. Grindelwald told him that Ariana wouldn't have to hide in the new world he sought to build where wizards ruled and emerged in all forms from their hiding. And we can deduce from this acknowledgement that Grindelwald knew what Ariana was, that he sought the obscurial in Beast One because he had firsthand awareness of the power on offer and coveted it to wield, we assume, as a weapon to gain power. To wield, we assume, as a weapon against Dumbledore in particular, knowing as we know now that the blood pact they made as young men prevented them from moving against each other. To wield, we must also assume, as a weapon to wound, to destabilize Dumbledore mentally and emotionally. There was an argument, Aberforth says, and I pulled out my wand and he pulled out his and I had the cruciatus curse used on me by my brother's best friend. Albus tried to stop Grindelwald, tried to save his brother. He continues, and then all three of us were dueling and the flashing lights and bangs set her off. She couldn't stand it. He turns as pale as death as he continues, saying that he knows Ariana just wanted to help. But she didn't really know what she was doing and I don't know which of us did it. It could have been any of us and she was dead. Nothing could have prepared us for this, for learning at last what role Albus Dumbledore played in his sister's death. Hermione's weeping, Ron as pale as Aberforth. From the book, Harry felt nothing but revulsion. He wished he had not heard it, wished he could wash his mind clean of it. Awful. Gone, Aberforth says, gone forever. Grindelwald, he explains, fled. He couldn't risk this death being linked to him, given the record that he already had. He was, as we know, expelled from Durmstrang. Quote, and Albus was free, wasn't he? He says, free of the burden of his sister, free to become the greatest wizard of the... And Harry cuts him off. He was never free, he says. And this is a priceless, sacred moment. Harry, despite all of his doubts, despite all that he's hearing now, speaking up in defense of a man who was, no matter what, his friend. A man that he's coming to understand in death in a way he never did in life. He shares something here that he's never even told Ron and Hermione. That in the cave, Dumbledore drank a poison that drove him mad. Quote, he started screaming, pleading with someone who wasn't there. Don't hurt them, please hurt me instead. He recalls how Dumbledore whimpered, how he pled. Quote, he thought he was back there with you and Grindelwald. I know he did. He thought he was watching Grindelwald hurting you and Ariana. It was torture to him. If you'd seen him then, you wouldn't say he was free. Very few moments compared to this in reinforcing how unbreachable what Harry and Dumbledore shared really was. How fully they understood each other, even when it didn't feel that way. Even when that trust and faith were so cruelly tested. In King's Cross, Harry will experience a similar moment of clarity when he realizes after speaking to Dumbledore about Ariana, what the headmaster would have seen in the mirror of air said. Not thick woolen socks, but his family, united and whole. And no, we do not believe that Dumbledore seeing something else in the mirror in crimes changes this. As we know from Harry's journey in stone, that what a person sees in the mirror can change over time. Mm -hmm. Dumbledore would tell Harry, too, that his desire for the resurrection stone, while ever-present, we know, changed over time in its reasons. As a boy, he wanted it as a way out of his burdens. As an old man, nearing the end of a life defined by greatness, yes, but also by loss and regret. He wanted a way to reunite his family again. 
Forgetting the ring in which the stone sat was a horcrux. He put it on. Quote, For a second I imagined that I was about to see Ariana. He'll tell Harry in King's Cross. And my mother. And my father. And to tell them how very, very sorry I was. Aberforth contemplates Harry's words. Eventually he speaks again. How can you be sure, Potter, that my brother wasn't more interested in the greater good than in you? How can you be sure you aren't dispensable just like my little sister? A shard of ice seemed to pierce Harry's heart. This very question will haunt Harry and readers alike as we dive into the pensive and see in Snape's memories. Dumbledore tells Snape that Harry will have to die. You have kept him alive so that he can die at the right moment, Snape will ask, horrified, accusing Dumbledore of raising Harry like a pig for slaughter. When Harry rises from the memories and pulls himself up, the truth washing over him at last, he'll think Dumbledore's betrayal was almost nothing, of course. There had been a bigger plan. And it's true, in a way. There had been a bigger plan, but not one that actually stood as a betrayal, one that relied on Harry's unrivaled commitment and compassion and courage and love. You wonderful boy, Dumbledore will say when they meet in King's Cross. You brave, brave man. Hermione voices here the conviction that will prove worthy in the end. I don't believe it, she says. Dumbledore loved Harry. And he did. But why, Aberforth asks, didn't he tell him to hide, to run? Because he couldn't, we'll learn. Because Harry had to shed the horcrux within. But also, because he possesses the traits that make him such a worthy hero and will allow him to defeat Voldemort in the end, he'll never walk away from the fight. Aberforth tells Harry that he's only 17. But listen, our guy's been saving the world since he was one. Yeah. I'm of age, Harry says now, and I'm going to keep fighting even if you've given up. Now, this comment is earned, but cruel, and it leaves Aberforth cold. Who says I've given up, he replies, and Harry parrots his own words right back to him. I don't say I like it, but it's the truth, Aberforth says. No, it isn't, said Harry. And we can feel how fully he believes this, how assured he really is of the validity and sanctity of his purpose. Your brother knew how to finish you-know-who, and he passed the knowledge on to me. I'm going to keep going until I succeed or I die. Don't think I don't know how this might end. I've known it for years. And he tells Aberforth in a matter that brokers no debate yeah. that he needs to get into Hogwarts with or without his help. And Aberforth contemplates Harry with those signature baby blues for what feels like an eternity. Taking the measure of this boy who still sees his brother and the possibility of hope and goodness in the world in a way that he cannot. And then he walks over to Ariana's portrait. You know what to do. And she smiles and turns and walks, not in the typical magical portrait fashion, through the sides of the frames, but back into the great unknown. Mm. And Aberforth tells them, there's only one way in now. Dementors and patrols are everywhere else. A place that they say is safer than any other has never been so heavily guarded. How you expect to do anything once you get inside it, he says with Snape in charge and the Carrows as his deputies. Well, that's your lookout, isn't it? You say you're prepared to die. <laughs> it's just chilling. And then a dot appears in the portrait, and Ariana begins walking back toward them. Quote. But there was somebody else with her now, someone taller than she was, who was limping along, looking excited. I love this so much. His hair was longer than Harry had ever seen it. And Harry can see the cuts on his face as the figure draws nearer, growing bigger all the while. Quote, then the whole thing swung forward on the wall like a little door, and the entrance to a real tunnel was revealed. And out of it, his hair overgrown, his face cut, his robes ripped, clambered the real Neville Longbottom. 
who gave a roar of delight, <laughs> leapt down from the mantelpiece and yelled, I knew you'd come. So good. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jason? Yes? They know there are imposters in the studio. Uh-oh. They have set off defenses against us. So please protect us. Please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about goblins. Much like Tolkien's dwarves of Middle-earth, the goblins in J.K. Rowling's story embody a set of stereotypical traits and characteristics. They love gold, they work wonders in a smithy, and they're highly intelligent beings if somewhat cloistered and secretive in their ways. And while Rowling's gobbledygook-speaking goblins make infrequent appearances throughout the story, popping up in Harry's first trip to Diagon Alley, for instance, and mysteriously accosting Ludo Bagman and Goblet of Fire, we learn the most information about them in the stretch run of Hallows as we spend time with Griphook and follow the gang deep into Gringotts' depths. The earliest goblin we know of is Ragnuck I, creator of Godric Gryffindor's sword, who we discussed in more detail in the restricted section on the sword in the third Hallows episode. The second we know of is Gringot, namesake of the powerful bank in the 15th century. And then there are a whole bunch of goblins who we'd know more about if only Harry paid attention to the History of Magic class when Professor Binns was droning on about the various goblin rebellions. They are a key part of goblin history and contribute to the uneasy relationship Griphook enjoys with the trio in this section of Hallows. Goblins and wizards killed each other for centuries, with multiple rebellions fizzling out and then starting all over again. From one of the wombat test questions on Rowling's old site, we learned that all but one out of six given factors triggered yet another rebellion. Rowling doesn't tell us which one is false, but that means five of the following reasons are true. They are. Ragnuck I's allegation that Gryffindor stole his sword. The accidental death of a Gringotts worker named Nagnock, killed by an untrained security troll sent by the Ministry. The imprisonment of Ugg the Unreliable, who was selling leprechaun gold. Hodrod the Horny-Handed's attempt to kill Whoa. three wizards. Three. Sorry, pause. Hodrod the Horny-Handed. Hodrod the Horny-Handed? Love this guy. Attempted to kill three <laughs> wizards and subsequent imprisonment. The Ministry's ban on magical beings other than wizards and witches from carrying a wand. And last, but certainly not least, a strange prank committed by a gang of young wizards who threw goblin activist Erg the Unclean into a public pond. Is that really that big a deal? In the present day, those tensions have simmered. But as Grip Hook's character shows and Bill Weasley's warning about his co-workers reinforced, the two sides still view each other with suspicion and coexist more for reasons of practicality than actual friendliness. The chief employer of goblins is Gringotts. Goblins are well-suited to do all kinds of banking work. Unlike wizards, they can easily discern the difference between fake and real valuables, and in the Gringotts chapter in Hallows, we see one employee deeming a gold coin leprechaun-made rather than legitimate. Goblins also mint the galleons, sickles, and canuts that flood the wizarding market, and we know from Hermione's coin scheme in order that the serial number on each coin in the wizarding world references the goblin who cast it. They also manipulate the muggle market a bit, too, in addition to overseeing large swaths of the wizarding economy. In a year 2000 AOL.com chat, Rowling answered a question about muggle-born wizards exchanging their currency for wizard coins by saying, those goblins are sneaky people. They managed to put the muggle money back into circulation. They are like fences, British slang. Goblins also produce fantastic metalwork. They're still creating indestructible weapons and armor, plus beautiful jewelry like Munerial's tiara and houseware. 
like the Black Family Goblins. So it's fitting that on a meta note, elaborate production went into making the goblins look right for the Potter films. According to an excerpt from Harry Potter, page to screen, the complete filmmaking journey, the effects team created the goblin aesthetic with silicon ears, chins, and noses, and that prosthetic technology improved over time, which is why Grip Hook's features look a bit more natural than the Gringotts goblins have in the first movie. And the designers achieved utmost realism by creating hairlines and eyebrows, one single hair at a time. With that attention to detail, they must have taken a cue from the very fictional creatures they were trying to create. Jason. Yes. The Dark Lord wants Potter's life, not his nuggets. But we're not Voldemort. So let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Hallows chapters 26 through 28, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Number one. This is the last time in the series that we walk through the doors of the Leaky Cauldron. Unbelievable. So it's worth reflecting for a moment on some fun facts about the Little Tavern. On Pottermore, rolling details how the Leaky Cauldron was built in the early 1500s and therefore visible to Muggles for nearly 200 years before the Statute of Secrecy. During this initial period, Muggles were even allowed to drink and socialize there. Imagine! Wow. Later in the 1800s, when Charing Cross Road was planned for construction, it, quote, ought to have flattened the leaky cauldron completely, Rowling writes. But the Minister of Magic's notion to let the cauldron be destroyed was derailed when, quote, he was presented with a note from a secretary explaining that the wizarding community had rallied, performed a mass of memory charms. Wow. <laughs> Some say to this day that the imperious curse was used on several Muggletown planners. Though this has never been proven. Tough look. (laughs) Oh, my God. And that the leaky cauldron had been accommodated in the revised plans for the new road. Certainly, the quote continues, the muggle architects involved never did understand why they had left a gap in their plans for buildings, nor why that gap was not visible to the naked eye. (laughs) Very tough look here for our guys, magical people. Yes. (laughs) Chill with the mind control, people, please. Terrible. Number two. There are a number of Aberforth goat connections in this section, starting with his penis. His Patronus takes the form of a goat, of course, and he says to Mariana, when she was quiet, she used to help me feed the goats. We learned in Goblin that Aberforth was, quote, prosecuted for practicing inappropriate charms on a goat. And that we never learned exactly what he did specifically. Well, Rowling gave quite a clue. In a 2007 Q&A, when... Apparently, a young questioner asked her about it. Rowling buried her head. Too much laughter from the audience and the following exchange unfolded. Rowling, how old are you? Questioner, eight. Rowling, I think that he was trying to make a goat that was uh, easy to keep clean. Laughter. <laughs> Curly horns. That's a joke that works on a couple of levels. I really like Aberforth and his goats. But you know, Aberforth having this strange fondness for goats. If you've read book seven... Keep it really useful to Harry. Later on, because a goat, a stag, you know. If you're a stupid death eater, what's the difference? So that is my answer to you. Oh, man. Boy. Woof. Boy. Oh, man. Boy. What should I say? Oh, my God. The Damn. Easy to keep clean part is. Hello. Troubling. Yeah. So. <laughs> deeply troubling. Deeply troubling. Also, curly horns. It's concerning. I guess so that you can't get stuck by them when you're doing stuff vis-a-vis the goats. <laughs> Easy access and curly horns. Very tough look for our guy, Aberforth. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Oh, my God. Number three. 
Uh, just floating this. Is Voldemort a moron? <laughs> when determining which Horcrux to check first, as we discussed earlier, he decides on the ring in the shack because despite thinking, quote, no one had ever known him to be related to the Gaunts, he had hidden the connection. And then, again, as discussed, he feels that flicker of unease when he realizes Dumbledore knew his middle name. Well, you know who else knew your middle name, Tom? Harry fucking Potter. When you, his good friend Tom, told him that in the Chamber of Secrets. When you were bonding, as good friends do. Now, (laughs) one might say that present-day Voldemort didn't know what the bit of his soul contained inside the diary did. Okay, fine. But that means he was actually kind of working against himself. Which is a fascinating wrinkle to ponder either way. Number four, a pressing and unanswered question that arises from these chapters. How did the Azkaban escapees, specifically Bellatrix, reacquire their wands? When Harry asks Ollivander to identify the wands he procured from the Death Eaters in the escape from Malfoy Minor, the wand maker immediately recognizes them as belonging to Draco Malfoy and Bellatrix Lestrange. And the trio realizes that the second wand tortured Neville's parents, which Bellatrix did before going to jail. When prisoners are remanded to Azkaban, their wands are confiscated and we can assume, examine to see what spells have been cast. Does that examination take place on the island? And are the wands then stored there as well? Or are they transported and stored at the Ministry for Magical Law Enforcement to run priority and contain them? Mm. If it's the first, perhaps the escapees, including Bellatrix, nick the wands from an evidence room. If they're moved to the Ministry, perhaps a sympathetic witch or wizard managed to sneak the wand out. But we just don't know. Number five, shouts to Travers. Busy burrowing himself into a hole in the walls of Gringotts. The Travers family <laughs> is one of the pureblood sacred 28. Sacred 28. And we know of one of this Travers' ancestors, Torkel Travers, head of the Department of Magical Torkel. <laughs> Tough name. Head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. He is the one who questions Dumbledore at Hogwarts in the second Beast movie. And in that film screenplay, he is described as, quote, harsh, mean-spirited. So it seems the rotten apple doesn't fall far from this pure blood tree. Number six. What kind of dragon is the former Gringotts dragon per Pottermore? It, quote, could well be a Ukrainian iron belly. The iron belly is described as being the largest breed of dragon in the wizarding world with, quote, metallic grayscales, deep red eyes, and long, vicious talons. So figuring the metal gray scales might have lost some of their luster and the red eyes faded to pink after years underground, the Iron Belly fits the Gringotts dragon's description. In Fantastic Beasts, recall, Newt's commander mentions to Jacob that he worked with Ukrainian Iron Bellies during the First World War. Number seven. In order to sink into Gringotts, Hermione transforms Ron into a bearded hottie. I like the beard. Just trim it. Yep. Now my jaw a little bit square. Yes. Good. Okay. This is a notoriously difficult sub-branch of transfiguration, which is introduced to Hogwarts students in their sixth year. It has certain advantages over polyjuice, the notable one being that there's no time limit on the transformation. As Hermione says in Goblet ahead of the second task, quote, the ideal solution would be for you to transfigure yourself into a submarine or something. If only we'd done human transfiguration already. But I don't think we start that until sixth year and it can go badly wrong if you don't know what you're doing. The main risk is the subject being stuck in their transfigured state. It suggested that wizards and witches not experienced with transfiguration not attempt to change their appearance on their own. Luckily, Hermione is brilliant 
and Ron is in safe hands. Elsewhere, we've seen a number of examples of human transfiguration from more experienced wizards, too. Bardai Moody turns Malfoy into a ferret. I still say that was not good. And his father's corpse into a bone in Goblet of Fire. Crumb badly transfigures himself. Into Shark Boy. (laughs) (laughs) Into Shark Boy. During the second task, Slughorn turns himself into an armchair in Half-Blood Prince. And of course, Grindelwald turns himself into Percival Graves in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Mel, how is it possible that today's champion could have discovered our secret? Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. Harry Potter! Our guy's first win in Deathly Hallows. Wow. Harry spearheads the Gringotts heist and does anything and everything to carry it off successfully. And he gets Hufflepuffs. Yes. We know there's been a Gringotts break-in before with Quirrell, but this is the first case we know of a Gringotts break-in and theft. And Harry frees a dragon from untold years of bondage. Incredible. Escapes from the bank with Ron and Hermione on the dragon's back. He surprises Voldemort. He really does. Voldemort had underestimated his abilities yet again. And here, Harry puts true fear in Voldemort's heart. Let's not forget that he discovers that a Horcrux is hidden at Hogwarts using the connection he shares with Voldemort. He also bravely casts his Patronus to save himself, Ron and Hermione, from the Dementors, despite the Death Eater's presence. Stands his ground despite Aberforth's pointed and forceful critiques and reveals about his brother, Albus Dumbledore. That's an incredible moment for Harry. He took it all and he stood strong. The strength of his convictions, it's incredible. And of course, right there at the very end, he reunites with nearly chosen one DA member and soon-to-be destroyer of Nagini, Neville Longbottom. What a guy. All right, friends. It was torture to Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. If you'd seen them then, you wouldn't say they were free. <laughs> Still, we hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again next time when we will be discussing Deathly Hallows chapters 29 through 31. Until then, remember, Bingemo wanted a lot of things. And people had a habit of getting hurt while we were carrying out our grand plans. You need to get out of here. At first light, get under the invisibility cloak, head up into the up into the mountains. <laughs> We're not leaving. We've got to get. What is that? Don't be stupid, boy. But we've got to. What? What is that? What is it? Listen to me, boy. He'll never stop looking for you. <laughs> Aver, can we just stop for a second? What is that sound? <laughs>